We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash hack it out. Just go to Indeed.com slash hack it out right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hack it out. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Hacking Out Golf Podcast with myself, Mark Crosswell, Scott Fawcett and Lou Stagner. As always, we have a very special guest today, golf broadcaster Brandel Chambly. We're going to be talking about the Masters, golf broadcasting and listening to some fun stories from Brandel with over 20 years of broadcasting experience. Should be a fun episode. So welcome to the podcast, Brandel. Thank you for your time today. Pleasure to have you on. How is everything with you at the moment? Uh, terrific. And it's nice to be uh, here and join you fellas. Uh, I just got to Augusta a couple of days ago, did the whole COVID testing thing, and I just went out to the set and did a rehearsal. So uh, things are falling in line out here. The course looks great. Uh, happy to be back to a springtime Masters and to cover the second annual on the drive, chip and putt. It's turned into a almost Wimbledon, a fortnight here. Uh, to speak your language. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So uh, it's it's a it's a fortnight at uh, Augusta. Okay. And what, how many spectators are actually coming into Augusta this year? Do we know their numbers? I I've no, not heard they, any... they never do release the numbers. Uh, you know, just guessing. I would say somewhere between five and ten thousand. Uh, okay. You know, something along those lines. There'll, there'll be some roars. Uh, yeah, so that's good, because that was obviously very missed in November, wasn't it? Yeah, November sure was was. Uh, was odd. I mean, it was great that we were playing in here, I suppose, but it was it was not a whole lot like a Masters, irrespective of the fact that it was devoid of a crowd, just the softness that the golf course played and, and, and without springtime framing every hole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it was almost like the Hail America Open from 1942, um, <laughs> which, which, which some people want to claim as the U.S. Open. But I, yeah. I, I, I think it's the, the fact that Ben Hogan shot 62 in it is enough to to make it dubious. Uh, clearly, it was set up easier. Look, the, I mean, this one counts, obviously. This Masters counts, obviously. But it was nothing like a springtime Masters. For the first time ever, a player shot four scores under 70. That was Cameron Smith. It had never been done before. Uh, for the first time ever, somebody shot 20 under par. He only made four bogeys in the week. Yeah, um, yeah. That's not to take anything away from his play, but it clearly was not the slippery firm test that you see in April. And, do you, and what's the weather shaping up like for this week? Um, you know, are, are we getting any forecasts? Is it going to be drier? Is it going to be wind about? How is it going to play the predictions? Obviously, it can all change. I get that. But what are the predictions yeah, looking I, like I, for the week? Yeah, I've, I've kept a pretty close eye on the weather. The, I saw a bit of a forecast for, for rain at one point late next week. But other than that, it's it's uh, it's it's looked good. It's looked dry, cool. The ten day here has it right at uh, pretty good, just mid sixties to to right at eighty. 
light wind doesn't show anything. So it should, it should be pretty good. It's got that one day of scattered storms Brandon's talking about on Friday. But overall, it looks like a pretty pleasant week. So hopefully we'll we'll get the Masters back that we love, hopefully. Yes, yes. I'm all for that. Yeah, absolutely. So should we hit, we got some questions for Brandall today. We're going to kick off with the one that uh, I'm intrigued with, but we're going to start with um, times when I wished I had tackled myself. Because I, I, I actually don't know what that means. Does that mean like you wanted to like reel back what you're saying? Is that what that's saying? Is that like an American yeah. phrase, tackled myself? Yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah, let's deal with that one to kick us yeah. off. Obviously, you are known for speaking your mind. You're known, like, you, you remind me a little, you're a bit like the Simon Cowell of the golf world. Am I allowed to say that? Does that resonate with you guys over there as well? Yeah, I'll, take that as a, I'll take that as a huge compliment. I, yes. I watched American Idol just because of him. So, okay, uh, um, so what, what, what does that one say? Times I wish I tackled myself. You know, I, I'd say that live, you know, uh, calling live golf so I like playing live golf you get it wrong sometimes and yeah uh you know you always you have to always check your motivation for you know things you're saying uh, even more now because it, you know the whole world can attack you from every source and sometimes if you get puffed up and try to defend things that are tough to defend uh it can take you in the wrong way so you always do have to check your motivation so you know eons ago uh when I wrote a column about Tiger Woods where I called into question a movement of a golf ball and a rules issue i'm not talking about what happened at a masters i'm not talking about even what happened at the players in 2013 it was what happened at the bmw and i um you know i got in a bit of trouble over that and and and, and rightly so you know i i i saw it one way um those who took exception to what i was saying and framed it said you can't with 100 percent certainty know where a player's eyes are when you can't see his eyes fair point uh and the way I wrote the article was a little bit more, um, uh, I would say, inflammatory. Uh, I could have written it a different way. You know, th that, that was certainly it. That didn't involve me speaking on the air. But I have been reminded numerous times that you, you can never, you can never, um, you don't have to take yourself seriously, or you try not to, but you should take things that come out of your mouth very seriously. We had a, a whole expose on a, on a fabulous teacher by the name of Jimmy Ballard. And he, he taught in the eighties. He was a bit of a, you know, had a huge following in the eighties, a little less so in the nineties and is almost sort of, you know, disappeared off the landscape now in terms of following. But anyway, he, he taught a, a very much of a sort of a, a shift to the right, not much of a turn and a shift to the left. And, and his players, for the most part, hit it straight. I mean, his, his disciples, Curtis Strange was one of them. He hit it very straight. Hal Sutton. Uh, I used to joke, you know, these guys could pick the bark off either side of a tree. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to play a lot. I, I, I used to play a lot of golf with a fellow by the name of Dillard Pruitt and Dillard. Uh, you know, matter of fact, if you go through statistics, you'll find Dillard Pruitt hitting more fairways at the masters than anybody else. You'll find Dillard hitting more greens in various places than everybody. Dillard, I'll backtrack here one second. I used to play a practice round every single week with Dillard. And when we'd get out there early, and sometimes there'd be a mower strip of dew down the middle. One day, Fred Wadsworth, another fellow that we used to play a lot of practice rounds with, he bet Dillard because Dillard would hit it so nauseatingly straight. He bet him 50 bucks that he couldn't hit the mower strip. And the mower strip's eight feet wide. Yeah, yeah. And he hit the damn mower strip. I, I, I'm, I, I mean, I saw it. $50 exchange hands. Uh, and I used to tease Dillard that he was a rock and blocker, you know, that was just my nickname for him. Cause he, he, he shifted right. He didn't turn shifted left and he finished like this, right. The rock and blocker. And I just teased Dillard like that. 
rock, you're a rock and block. And, uh, and I came to sort of call Ballard disciples, rock and blockers. So we had this beautiful expose of Jimmy Ballard, his impact in teaching, his lineage came from Sam Bird, who was, is the only athlete to have ever played a world series and also won PGA tour events. He was famously Babe Ruth's legs. Sam Bird taught Jimmy Ballard. That's the lineage. Anyway, we did this beautiful expose. And when it finished, we were just sort of going to commercial. And I said, yeah, you know, he taught a lot of great rock and blockers. And, and, you know, the words came out of my mouth and I, you know, it was a throwaway line. I, I don't use that term now. I did use it then. There are no throwaway lines now, but <laughs> off we went to commercial breaks and, you know, the next day, you know, Rocco Mediate, who was a disciple and Jimmy Bowden, they were hurt by my words. And I thought, yeah, I reduced his whole life down to, you know, That's a right. phrase that could be taken in a pejorative way. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I thought, you know, and that was not my intent. And so, uh, you know, you, you realize that, you know, I mean, even if we're talking about a player that not too many people know, um, their mom and dad are watching and their friends are watching. And so things that come out of your mouth, you need to pay very close attention to them. You know, uh, another time, and this one I, uh, is inexcusable. It's just being an idiot on TV. I was, uh, the camera was zooming in on a, on a pink ribbon on a player's uh, visor. And uh, it was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yeah. And as the producer was zooming in on the ribbon, he said, now, Bramble, tell us what that ribbon's for. And uh, I said, you know, there's the ribbon. They were playing in Vegas, by the way. And it's like, there's the ribbon. And of course, that's, that's to uh, acknowledge Breast Awareness Month. <laughs> and uh, you know the nearly the the cancer part of that is yeah. very important. Yeah. That, that was close there's, to being right. Certain senses. Exactly what we're going yeah. for. Yeah. Um, yeah. In my ear, my producer was yelling at me. He was like, "It's it's breast cancer," and I thought <laughs> I said that. I'm like, "Why are you yelling at?" Me? I thought I clearly said what you wanted me to say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another time I was, uh, I was called in last minute to, to cover an LPGA event, which I you know, almost never cover uh, because Judy Rankin's uh, husband had passed away. So last minute off I go and uh, you know, go familiarize with the names, the proper pronunciation of the names, match up the, the swings with the names, get them all right. And uh, anyway, I'd spent like three days getting ready um, for this broadcast and gosh um my ex-girlfriend was the producer of the broadcast and she's a terrific very sharp woman by the name of beth hutter she's you know we've gone our separate ways she's married i'm married now anyway it was a it was not a hard name at all to get but i flipped the first and the last name uh it was made it was it was balin mozo it was balin mozo that's who it was so i'm in this long rip of of players and it comes to Balin Mozo and uh, on air, I called her Malin Bozo. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in, 
in, in, in, in is that my, why you married Bailey Moser? Because that's kind of a close yeah, name. Exactly. Is that, like, is that the way you apologize? That's, that's good, Scott. That's good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in my ear, you know, Beth, who's very clever and very funny, she was like, it's Bailey Mozo, you bozo. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, look, you, you, you make mistakes all the time. Uh, you don't want to. You don't try to. Uh, I've it's rare that I finish a show that I think, yeah, I got, I got everything right that I wanted to get right because yeah, you, yeah. you're trying to get in information. A lot of times I'm trying to get in very specific information. I'm trying to do it in a very condensed and, and a very specific amount of time. And I need graphics and I need video to hit that specific information exactly when I want it to. Yeah. So it's rare when you finish a show, graphics roll in right when you speak to the information, the information's perfect. The information illuminates your point in the right way. It's rare when all that comes together. It's much, much harder to get the video to back up your points than people could imagine because you could just go on YouTube and find any video you want for anything. But there are things called rights feeds that TV, yeah. television has to pay attention to. So you can't just go on YouTube and grab video to use for your breakdowns. It has to be specific video. So it's much, much harder for me to get the video than the average teacher when they're trying to illuminate a point in the golf swing. So it's rare when I finish a show when everything goes right, very rare. But I always remind myself, you know, uh, I like to prepare very hard. And then once that light comes on, I think if I have fun, uh, generally speaking, um, and, and listen, listening yeah. is more important than talking. Um, generally speaking, uh, it's a pretty good show. Fantastic. So, I mean, you said in that there, which is quite interesting, it kind of leads on to the next question where we get things wrong. I mean, golf, how long have you been broadcasting now? How long have you been broadcasting? Almost 20 years. So, I mean, a good amount of time and in that 20 years and certainly in the last X amount of years, there's been an acceleration of maybe different ideas, different way of looking at things. And one of the questions we've got here is evolving in the job. I mean, it's something certainly that, Maybe telly gets, I mean, I've criticized it and maybe lots of people sat on this pod have criticized it through the past. It's um, sometimes not the quickest to evolve. Like, how, how do you deal with the ideas that are evolving in sport? Because, you know, you, you've got to be talking to quite a broad audience, haven't you? In the sense that you're going to be talking to my dad, who's a golfer, who just wants to know who's winning and what hole they're on. And then you might be talking, well, you are, you're talking to me, Lou and Scott, who have got a certain knowledge base. And we want you to be telling my dad the right things with whatever the right things may be. So how has that worked for yourself? The evolving of maybe your knowledge or understandings or even how to articulate what you're seeing so the audience gets that broader picture. It's unbelievable how much it's changed. It's not yeah. even the same job. When I first, the first Masters I covered was 2001. And I can remember sitting down and going on the PGA tour.com and there was greens and regulation, fairways hit and putting averages and scrambling numbers. And I could do the top 50 players in the world and I could do all of them. And I could get all the data I needed and put them down on paper and, and consume it all and, and, and have it ready to go like that. Yeah. And I could do it in three days. And, and now then, if I've got the time, I can spend three days on, on an individual player because there is so much more data. And the data is far more specific. And, and, it, and it, you know, you're trying to grab that. The data is not the story, or at least it's not to me. The data is meant to drive me to the story. The data is meant to... My job is to say, you know, to dig the data up, but then what does the data say? And then why 
Why are, why are these things happening? And that just takes, that just takes a long time if you're doing it right. And that involves everything that involves going into the, the interviews and reading everything they talk about, everything they say, and listening to their coaches and looking at the video and trying to connect dots and trying to find parallels in the data and trying to find, sometimes it's, you're trying to find the needle in the haystack. Sometimes you're trying to find the dinosaur in the haystack, you know, um, sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you're just looking everywhere to get it right. And so, you know, there's different teachers, there's different, you know, like the fellows here, Lou and, and Scott. So now that there were no metrics, there were no saber metrics people doing this years ago. Uh, I had resources of data that I could get to that not too many people knew about. Yeah. Uh, so I could, I could bring some light to some, some issues from, cause I was relentless 20 years ago looking for data, but now guys come along and it's their job and they, they do data, you know, far better than I can do. And and there's not many of them, but there's a handful of them, and and they're terrific at their jobs. And so everybody competes for the same information, and everybody, if they're doing the job right, they should have the same information. But then the nuance, or, or the the devil's in the details, it is literally what does that mean? You know, you know, why is this information important? Uh, who's following it? Why are they able to? hit more fairways? Why are they able to hit more grades or less? Why do some people win and some people lose? You know, Scott and Lou have, have, I think, brought a wonderful light to strategy in the game of golf. Whereas before it was, it was, it was far more generic and they've, they've, they've defined it in far more specific ways. But even if everybody follows to the letter of the law, everything that Scott and Lou uh, are are doing in decade uh, and decade, even if they do that, even if they, they have that plan, there's still going to be people that that win and lose. There's still going to be people that play great and play terrible. And even if they're trying to, to do all these things. And so my job is to say, why? So you got to have access to the information and you got to have an understanding of strategy or their strategy. And then you got to have historical context. And then you got to understand the golf swing. And then you've got to try to extrapolate from there and make it digestible and then spit it out to your audience in a way that's entertaining, informative. And, and, and then you have to do it all over again the next day. About yeah, the exact same right. <laughs> I think to your point right there, though, is like you say, this is my full-time job. I, I have 47 years of history of looking in data, and this is what I do all day, basically every day. And then you've got architects that that's what they do all day, every day. And then physios and then 3d guys and then players and, you're technically supposed to know all of everything we teach because we're watching you like a hawk. <laughs> Obviously, I've given you a hard time in the past. And it's funny because in hindsight, you're like, wow, you really are. You, you can't know everything. Again, you've got seven different genres all doing this full time. And then you're supposed to you know, bring it all together. And it's it really is an, an almost impossible task because then, like you say, and I, I've said it, I typically try to preface my times when I give you all a hard time by saying, I can't imagine how hard filling four hours of dead air has to be. And that's the thing that I think I've grown more appreciative of, of guys like you and Nablo have come to my seminar and Karen Stupples has, I've spent time with her on a webinar, like y'all are trying to evolve in your job. And that's great to see. And then there's a couple of announcers that probably need to get more on that. Yeah, but- I mean, You'd be, you'd be crazy not to dive in, right? And I've learned a lot from you and Lou. Um, but, but again, and here's where there's always room for nuance. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So I saw you uh, going back and forth with Faxon uh, about he said he was a lag putter. And you said, well, you're not. He had to mark his comebackers was the problem. Yeah. 
he had to mark when he missed the putt. He had to mark it coming back. Oh, is that Just what it was? I thought he said he was aggressive hitting putt. putts. Putts firm, but yes, we were. No, no, no. He said he had he had to mark his comebackers, and I just was like, that's not true. And I just was saying that's not true, just kind of offhanded, thinking he'd be like, yeah, well, I'm just I'm just speaking generically on a podcast. But he doubled down on it, and I was like, oh, oh boy, yeah. here we go. <laughs> so was that what he said? He said it. He was being a, he wanted to put aggressively. Is that yeah, like- he was on the podcast, and the excerpt that they posted on Twitter was Brad just going, you know, when I it's and it's just bravado, you know, when I'm when I was putting my best, I would have to mark my comebackers, which again, just means oh, wow. that he's saying he was a rammer and it's, I've just looked at enough data, Lou's looked enough data that I'm like, I know that statement's not true. And where I take issue is kids in college, especially are going to hear that and go out well, facts and put it aggressively. I'm going to go do that. And it's like, that's the only reason I really sometimes mix it up is because I'm yeah, like, no, I, get I don't that. want the onlooker to, to think that's correct. Yeah, I get that. But, but there are, there are cases where I would argue that to a player, things are metaphorically true, but literally false. Hundred percent, and, true, yeah. and 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 metaphorically true to them is data. So it is the idea that creates the great golf shots that that smacks in the face of data. So that is the difference between data divers uh, who are geniuses at what they do and golfers. The two don't always braid. And, and so when I read that, you know, I'm friends, I'm friends with facts and, you know, obviously I have huge respect for you guys and I'm seeing this and I'm like, this is just two people talking across each other. Totally uh, agree. Because this must've been on Twitter. Must've been on Twitter. It was on Twitter. It was in text. Trust me. The platform of talking across each other, that is. <laughs> exactly. The whole world's talking across each other. Um, but, but, you know, that, that is the difference between, but I thought that debate encapsulated the difference between player and analyst. Uh, and I get that all the time because, you know, I try to give, I try to give the, the viewers perspective. I try to speak to the viewer and I feel like, you know, it, it's not my job to be friends with players. I try to find the nuance there and the truth and connect those dots, but oftentimes it's at odds with players. And, and that's, that's easy to do when you're talking data. Because you know they they uh, they don't always see it that way or 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 come to those same same conclusions. I think one of the issues there with the disconnect between what's actually happening and what the player thinks is happening is confirmation bias starts to become part of the equation now for them, mm. and what and and they think I need to be jamming my putt past the hole, and that's when I putt well. And with Faxon's case, the opposite was true. I went and looked at. Yeah. All of his rounds that we had in the shot link era. And when he putted well, he was lagging the ball much closer to the hole. And when he, when he putted poorly, his worst rounds of putting were when he was hitting the ball well past the hole. And the problem with that disconnect is if you think you're putting well, when you're really hitting it well past the hole, now you get into this downward spiral of, of chasing potentially the wrong thing, which is why I think it's important to, to have a, a complete holistic view of the data and, and, and what it means. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can go in and, and I have, you know, um, and I look at Faxon's data and I look at, you know, I think probably in a cruder way than you have. Um, but I'll, I'll look at where he ranks strokes game putting and I'll look at his approach putt performance and try to draw some parallels there. And, and what, oftentimes I find worse putters will be a little bit more aggressive, but there's a sweet spot between finishing first and last and approach putt performance. There's a sweet spot. You know, if you go and I think, for, you know, the last 10 years approach putt performance, which measures how close the, the net, you know, the, the, the putt is after the first putt, those guys finish around 95th in approach putt performance. They're certainly not the best and they're certainly not the worst, but they're, they're right in the middle. And, and fax was a little, a little higher than that. He was, you know, a little bit better than that, but in that same realm. So, you know, what does that tell you? I, I don't, I don't know. It just tells me that they're not putting defensive. But the key to um, that is though, Brandel is that's, that is irrespective of whether the putts long or short left or right. And that's again, the devil in the detail where, I never made it to the PGA tour played the U S open one on the Hooters tour. Like I can play. And that's where I say I'm pretty good player. And I can see, I see the data differently. You know, there's, there's a few things, Mark Brody, and I wouldn't even say we disagree on, but I always say, if we have a disagreement, he's correct in the math. I have a different application of it because I'm always trying to find actionable advice. And this is where I have even involved mm-hmm. as a teacher, because the first few years, this was just a side gig that I wasn't really taking. I, w- I was taking it serious, but I wasn't trying to make it my job. And I would just be like, I don't care. This is what you need to do. And what I have finally settled on is I need you to feel aggressive while putting while not making what would you know classically be considered an aggressive shot pattern. And that was the, the key thing. There, with- the key there is feel, isn't it? And that's often the problem because when you're talking about player interviews or players talking players like players having to work with media where literally the mic shoved in their face and the players just got to say something because they want the media to go away like oh you know how did you do that <laughs> well i'm just going to say what because the other people have said that i've watched because they don't care or no it's deceit that sometimes they can't tell the difference between what the feel is compared to what the stats are so then they're breeding that feel as what is actually happening, isn't it? That's that's often the gray area where I do think a really good broadcaster can step in and maybe help them direct them into saying, well, that's kind of more what you feel, isn't it? Because if we look at your data, X, Y, or Z happens, it's that kind of medium balance needs to be found, I think. Because it kind of leads me on to my next question is, like, how much do you feel your job? Like, Because if you go too stats heavy, like you're going to be turning my dad off. My dad's just going to switch off. Oh, yeah. And myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so how, where, where do you draw the divide between entertainment? At the end of the day, you're providing entertainment. That's fair to say, isn't it? That's what you would see Absolutely. your job as, an entertainer in effect. You know, what balance do you strike between wanting to be just completely factually true compared to, you know, wanting to provide entertainment? I mean, we had, um, we had, um, I'm so bad at remembering names. Everyone has COVID today. We're all morons. Oh my God. We had Michael Breed on the show and he told us that Uh there was a, he said some stat around X percent of people who were watching his show, all the golf actually didn't play golf. So like, if you look at the stats of people who watch tennis, 
there's a big percentage of them not playing Wimbledon. It's like, a, I, I'm, I'm just spitting numbers out there. Don't quote me on this, but it's like yeah. 80% of people who don't play tennis are actually still watching. So you go too deep into stats with them. They're not going to watch anymore. So like, where do you watch your, how, do you find you have to find a balance in there somewhere? Absolutely. You know, it's called, you know, not every now and then, you know, you'll hear from your producer in your ear, you know, that's a little too inside baseball. Yeah. <laughs> and especially, if you know, this Saturday we'll do a show on NBC and there, obviously you're speaking to an audience that may not necessarily be as golf geeky as we are. Yeah. And it's important not to go to inside baseball, but in general, yeah, I, I love to dive into numbers, but only to reduce them. Yeah to what they mean and, and then try to speak more colloquially um, and have fun. I try not to, to go full data disc attack on you yeah. when I'm on the air. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to reduce those numbers to, you know, what is the smallest, the one number, you know, you know, like the movie Moneyball. It's like, we got to get this thing down to one thing. And they, they, it's like on base percentage, that's it. And it's like, yeah. and, and for me, at least for the masters this week, you know, it's like, you, you, you know, I mean, these are, you, you know, you guys will laugh at me, but I mean, these are just incredible is the what numbers. they are. These are all the numbers. I'm putting. He's yeah, holding up 27 like, uh, yellow pads for those who, who are just yeah, listening along. Yeah, holding up loads of notebooks. It is incredible. And I mean, every one of these is covered, covered, covered. And it's like, you you get these numbers down, it's like, well, okay, here's, here's the deal. I, I could reduce everything in those pages with the exception of, on the individual players where I anticipate questions and I, and then I try to, you know, come up with some reasons for some questions that might be difficult. I try to get it down to basically, you know, the simplest possible scenarios. And it's, it's, uh, it, it boils down to 36 masters since the world rankings went into effect. 25 of those masters have been won by players ranked 16th in the world or better, so obviously the, the Masters is the easiest tournament to predict. <laughs> why, why, why is that? And then, and then you start to look at the commonalities of the winners, let's say over the last 10 years, uh, and you just really get down to strokes game tee to green. And it's, it's inside these guys are in the top 10 with the exception of Patrick Reed, who's a bit of a, I say this, there are no poor men on the tour, but he's a poor man's Phil Mickelson. So he, <laughs> he, he, he he, he can he can spray it around like Phil and still manage to uh, scramble, but he wasn't that bad. He was 24th of strokes gained tee to green when he come in came in here and won. But everybody else is in the top 10. So it's like, okay, who's within the top 16 in the world? Who's within the top 10 of strokes gained tee to green? Who comes in here playing well? And you've reduced 85, 90 guys to 16, to 7, to 4. And then, and then I think, well, who are the biggest surprises? Who could surprise and within those parameters, not world rankings, but within, you know, the last month or two when world rankings don't necessarily tell the right, the truth, you start to look at individual tournaments and individual shots. And you look at his speed because his, obviously his numbers are better than they would in a, in a cumulative manner, uh, be, be representative. And then I look at other players who are not there in world ranking yet, like a Will Zalatoris. So I think Will Zalatoris could play great this week. Um, you know, he's fourth in strokes gained tee to green. Yeah. Uh, and he's played great coming in here. Uh, you know, if he had a decent strategy on a golf course, maybe he'd be better. <laughs> his, stra uh, his strategy's hopeless. <laughs> Look at that. We had him on the pod last week. <laughs> and get, I was. Did he get some I, solid I, help I with his strategy? I kept telling him. <laughs> 
Just go yeah. at the flags, Just Will. Why are you getting a 10 he, foot low? Because bold <laughs> players win at Augusta. He, he wants Anybody to hit four out of 15. So, I can't get him to think I mean, driving. I, I want to dive in and I want to kind of blend a couple of things here. So earlier in the pod, you talked about how how much broadcasting has changed since you started in 2001. And by the way, I did a little research to prepare for our conversation with you. And I forgot, it slipped my mind, you were the first round leader at Augusta in 1999. And I came across that. Oh, and, and, wow. and I did my research. My research is actually electronic. It's not on a bunch of yellow pads. So <laughs> I looked it up electronically. <laughs> so it's yeah, antiquated. antiquated, exactly. So you talked about how much broadcasting has changed through the years. And then, and then you talked about how you try to find this blend of uh, entertaining and informing, distilling it down to useful information. How do you think that's going to evolve over the next few years as the PGA Tour continues to get more into sports betting, gambling? What's that, what do you think that's going to look yeah. like? I think it's going to look like uh, real time. Uh, you know, if you're calling live golf, it's obviously going to be, you know, I, I think, have a bigger impact there because as you call live golf, but, but again, you know, this comes with a lot of caveats because if you're <laughs> influencing bets in real time and you get information wrong and you influence bets in the wrong way or the right yeah, way, yeah. then people are going to go up in arms and deals will change yeah. which way they might want to challenge you. Yeah, so yeah. It, 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 it is a Pandora's box and how that gets worked out uh is 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 going to be messy at times uh you know i try not to think about that i i always i, I look i i know people are betting on but i you know if, if if i thought people were betting the farm off of things i thought you know when i'm comes time to predict things on wednesday night i'm not sure i could do the job it's like, it's like, it's like you know in the end golf is the hardest sport to predict yeah uh you guys you know, our sports geeks, maybe you can differ with that. No, but golf no. is impossible to predict. We did a whole podcast yeah, the, on win percentages. Trust me, we're on board with that. Right. Yeah. Right. The difference between the best and the worst is somewhere around 7% in golf, and it's 30, 50, 60% in other sports. So trying to and acting like you can accurately predict is a fool's errand. So it is a game of, look, this is who I think, and this is why. And you need to have good arguments, but always with the sense that, there's 140, well, not this week, but typically there's 155 other guys here that you can make an argument for. Uh, but how will it change with sports betting? It will change a lot because they'll have in the graphics and they're going to need to, you know, if you're call, if you're doing live golf, they're going to have to update things immediately. This is, you just hit it 24 feet, but it's not even just because all 24 footers are not the same. A 24 footer downhill with this much break left to right will even be, should be delineated even more. And a 24-footer uphill with this much break at this speed. And so the more information you can give your audience, the more in tune they're going to be. Because the reason they've embraced this, you know, it's, this is, there's no secret here. They're embracing this because it's going to bring viewers. Yeah. It's going to bring interest. It's going to bring eyeballs. And it's, you know, it's the same reason, you know, people watch other sports. They're betting on them. And it makes it more interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's, there's going to be growing pains for sure. And in live golf, it's going to be more applicable. We try, I doubt we're going to try to implicate that, although we do have a section now, a segment now in our shows about the odds. 
And occasionally I'm asked to talk about those odds. And I've got Teddy Greenstein, Greenstein on, on speed dial. Uh, just talk to him. One, I like him. I think he's a sharp guy. Um, but it's the game is changing. I'm, you know, when we say grow the game and everybody talks about growing the game, and this is one of the ways it's growing, uh, you know, I get it. It's going to bring more eyeballs. It, it's not my preference. Um, I agree. It's not, the way I'd like to see the game. it's not the way I'd like to see the game grow at all. Um, so, but, so how does that work in the states? So we, I, I don't really get that because we don't have that kind of culture on our telly sports that I understand over here. So you're talking about literally live betting as the, so people are watching and they're betting on the outcome of a putt. Are we? Is that what you're saying? Yep. A yes. putt, shot. Imagine, Wowzers. imagine if you're in the, imagine if you're in the crowd. Guy's got a ten footer, and you've bet a thousand bucks he's going to miss. <laughs> now as he takes the putt away. You yell in his backstroke. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I much, mean, so much potential disaster here. So much potential for disaster. Yeah. And and to think that wouldn't, to think that's not going to happen, is uh, is pretty naive. So I had a guy every time you know, one of my players I've worked with wins, I'll post like you know Joel Dahman won last week. Who's next? And I'll always have somebody chime in there with, why don't you post your whole list of people you work with or whatever? And I'm like, because I don't want to have anything to do with the gambling and because you see in tours timeline, tour players timelines, you chop, you miss that six foot putt cost me nine bucks. It's like, seriously, I, I think this is right. such a Pandora's box. It really is. It really is. Uh, you know, everything, you know, there's, it's not just the data, it's the teachers and the information. We have an infinite information um, reach, not just in data, in uh, movement patterns. We're able to, with, the accuracy, I mean, it used to be more like a magnifying glass. Let's say now it's a microscope. You can, you can get so much more detail and you can be so much more precise in your teaching. Teaching, I'd say, has gotten much better because of it. It has, definitely. Uh, and it, and, you know, it wasn't hard for it to get better. It was horrendous. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's still gone a long way to go, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, teaching was, you know, it was, it was laughably bad. It, and and it, there was no malice intended, but, but you know, just homespun ideas would sometimes take over and become cults and they'd get a following and people would try to, you know, do all these things because it was, you know, purely from an aesthetic ideal. Now then there's like, for example, what Bryson DeChambeau has done. These are very clear movement patterns and those movement patterns of power, they're like fingerprints. Um, they're not like fingerprints in that they're different. I mean, this is very clear. If you want to hit the ball nine miles, you have to do, three or four or five things in your golf swing. And they're, they're very specific and they're, they're ubiquitous. And, you know, if, if you can do those things, you can now pick up, well, you can come closer to achieving your optimal speed. And that's going to change the game. Bryson DeChambeau has got potential to change the game in a bigger way than Tiger did. Tiger brought, I agree. Tiger brought athletes to the game. Tiger brought athletes to the game, but none of them could do what Tiger did. Bryson's going to bring not, not necessarily people to the game. He's going to encourage people in junior golf, college golf, amateur golf, and young budding professional golfers to change their way, their golf swing in such a way that they're going to come out here and swing 135, 140 miles an hour. Yeah. So it's going to be unreal. Game, it's going to be unreal. It's going to be unreal. And, in a good, so in a good way or a bad way? I think in a great way. I do. Yeah. Uh, I think in a, fantastic know, I, I lean way. in when Bryson's playing golf and you know, as I said, teaching has been, it's been so bad for so long. And, 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 and now then 
you know, all those things that people used to teach, you know, I used to always say, if, if you want to know how to swing a golf club, watch the longest hitters in the world. They are like human lie detectors because, you know, if it did really work, you know, if resistance really did allow you to build up coil, which is what everybody was taught forever yep. and, and having the club in front of your hands and a shorter, if it allowed you to build up all this pressure, guys would do it in the long drive and none of them did it. None of them. They all moved off the ball. They all moved up. Sure. They all straightened the right leg. They all squatted down. They all jumped. They all rotated. They did all these things that everybody said you should never do. And Bryson incorporating all those moves and then putting the whole package together has a way to literally change professional golf. I was just to say to your point, it's not even just the, the best players in the world. I got a text from my buddy, shout out Kevin Schoolcraft yesterday, where he said he, we were talking about speed when we played five or six months ago. And he just sent me a text yesterday. He just shot his best round ever. And he said, maybe I'm delusional, but I swear the faster I've swing today, the straighter the ball went. Is that efficiency? Am I finally sequencing correctly? Have you found that to be the case during my own speed training? And I think that people will just naturally think that, farther equals offline or swinging harder equals more out of control. And that just does not have to be the case. Bryson is hitting it so straight. It's unbelievable. And I just think that that's the thing. Like when you say he's going to change the game, like I think that it's going to be unbelievable the difference, because I think that what tiger, what we missed with tiger back in the late nineties, early two thousands was his raw strength. We all thought he was just cardiovascularly super fit, but he was also just, absurdly in a strength to weight ratio off the charts. And I think that's what Bryson is showing. It's, it's certain moves like you're talking about, but then also just brute strength is, is a huge component of it that I think everybody missed. I, I just want to do a, a chime in on, on players swinging faster and, and getting less accurate. That that's not the case. I went back to 1983 and I looked at the players that had the largest year-over-year -year percentage gain in distance increase, top 200 players in PGA Tour history, uh, that had the largest year-over-year -year gain. I removed all of the upticks from the Pro V1 changeover to, to that ball. And, and the 200 players that were left, as a group, their accuracy got a little bit less, but it was a half a percent less. So they were missing like one fairway every 14 rounds and they gained a significant amount of distance. And Brandel, I believe you were like 18th on that list. And I forget what years it, it was, <laughs> but you had a huge year where you, 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 you increased significantly from the year prior. I don't, I don't remember what the years were. Yeah. I love y'all's work. I mean, just listening to you there, the detail that what you, you go, I mean, you guys are doing, you guys are informing the game in such a wonderful way. Um, Thank you. You know, every time I, I find myself saving y'all's posts, screenshot them, and then, and then ask myself, what does that mean? And how did it happen a lot? Uh, I try to, I try to, I, I did a, I did a hour podcast this morning uh, for a magazine and the, I get the question often about how inaccurate Bry Bryson is and they'll reference the U S open. And, and I, and I laugh I'm like, well, I'm like, you, you are, you are, this is like trying to light your house with a kerosene lamp. If you're using fairways hit, uh, as a metric, yep. uh, you know, he hit 23 fairways there and everybody's like, well, that's it. That's the worst fairways. It was like, that's the same ratio to fairways that, that Rory McIlroy hit when he won at congressional, um, and won by eight, and people said Rory drove it great that week. And, and if you, and I, I haven't done this, but I, I think I heard Scott or Lou, either one of you references, I think it was Scott maybe, when you 
when you measured every drive he hit yep. of the top 10 longest drivers that week, and the top three straightest yeah off the center line he was the straightest or top three straight I, I took the entire top 10 from the tournament and then the top three in fairways hit my biggest thing i don't really care about fairways i want to know how many balls you hit outside of a 65 yard wide zone yeah and what i, I I'm, yeah. I'm inferring i kind of know what most of these guys based on their length what it should be and this is something that i have to go through and do by hand because like i see their number one i feel like it was number one or five or something like that he he missed all four balls left but they were all on the exact same line like he just didn't quite carry them far enough to the to the fairway and so taking how many balls the guys hit outside of 65 yards. That's really inside of 65 yards is basically going to be a functional shot pattern. If you're having the correct targets and he had, he only had two all week outside of that 65 yard wide pattern. Like, and it's in, and both of them, one was on two and one was on eight, which are holes when he's trying to cut it. And he just shouldn't be trying to cut the driver. It's incredible how straight he hit it. Yeah. The other thing I want to add to that um, in the years that we have data, which is since 1983, uh, there have been seven years since 1983 where the winner of the U.S. Open hit less fairways than the field average. Last year with Bryson was not one of them. He hit more fairways than the field average. The field average was less than 23. So when people say he only hit 23 fairways, yes, that's true. But the field averaged like two, 22 and a half fairways. And there's only been seven times where the players hit less than field average. And, and Bryson wasn't one of them. He he. Hit hit more fairways in the field that week. It was just really yeah, tough to hit incredible. fairways. <laughs> it's a classic question of someone not quite understanding what that stat means. And, and the Basically, other thing too that I wanted, one, uh, that I, I put out there, I made a video on this. It's a really horribly done, you know, low talent video, but I have a stat. Hey, Lou, come on. It was good. <laughs> I have a stat that, that I, I look at called adjusted accuracy. And it's, n it's not a new concept. I, I, did, I stole it from someone else. That has, it made it. Brody talked about it in his book. But it essentially looks at um, how, what percentage of the time you are, you know, what percent, what angle you're hitting your tee shot. What's the horizontal angle? It's measured from the center of the fairway. Yes. So if you hit a 300-yard yes. drive and it's 30 yards away from the center of the fairway, it's 10% offline. And I bake that down into angles. And when you adjust the fairway accuracy, Bryson goes from, you know, one twentieth in accuracy with the traditional fairways hit, and he drops down to about 55th in adjusted accuracy. He is actually more accurate than Brendan Todd, which is kind of mind blowing <laughs> when you look at it that way. Right. It's mind. blowing. So if everyone hit it is different is distance, but they all sustain their start. He hits it closer to the center line, come, right? He hits it. Yeah. Keeping exactly. it in, inside the cone. Yeah. 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 See, this is, this is terrific. And this is you guys doing your work. Lou, if you, when we finish this, if you could tweet that and at me in it, I want to retweet that. Cause I saw that I saved it. I can't remember where it's at, but that is, again, I, you know, you try to educate not only the audience, but also people who do this job. Cause often I sit around and, you know, especially when people want to take shots at the distance, how far it's going. And they're like, look, he won the U.S. Open driving it all over the place. And I'm like, well, if you if you think that you should just study a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he drove it like a he god. They act like distance uh, is compounding to infinity. And really, since the Pro V1, the, the distance increase, it kind of goes in commensurate with the increases in average club head speed. Like it's just at this point with the, you know, whether you want to call the COR, the smash factor locked. The only way you're going to hit it further is by swinging the club faster. It's you're not going to, a right. guy threw out on Twitter right. yesterday. I just got for fit for a new Cobra and it was 
so fast. I'm like, no, your old driver was not fit. Well, that one is not right. better. And that's, that's right. That's, right. that's, that's the right. I mean, you got, you're right. They set, they've, they've established the parameters. You can't have any more COR yeah. or MOI. <laughs> can't have it any longer. Ball can't get any faster. If you're hitting it, like <laughs> Bryson's not using any new equipment. Yeah. yeah. Bryson, Bryson changed the, the engine of his car. He, he, he changed his body. He changed his, uh, his ideas on how to spend. When anytime people are like, ah, the ball's going too far. I'm like, okay, well, wait a minute. Bryson didn't get new equipment from two years ago to now. What did he change? He changed the athlete right. and, and I'm on, I think this is a good question actually for you. Cause I'm on, I, I think that there's a kid named Tommy Morrison here in Dallas, who he's 15 years old and he's six foot nine. I do think that for him limiting the driver, I mean, he's one of the best juniors in the country. I think he won the Southern junior this last summer, but he, uh, him swinging a 46 inch driver is going to look like a toothpick. I do think the USJ limiting it to 46 inches is probably a good idea I mean, what do you think on, on that? Well, look, I, I think, you know, what if somebody comes along with seven foot tall? Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah. they want to play golf. Why, li- why limit it? Why, there's enough limits in golf. There's enough limitations in golf. Why put more in there? Like, Yeah, there's meant to be, there's li- meant to be a give and take. And the give and take was forever. If you hit the ball farther, you were, your dispersion cone is wider. So you're going to miss more fairways. And, and so you had to make up the difference somewhere else. And that's essentially hasn't changed. Although I think if they started setting golf courses up, uh, I think more in tune with the advances in athleticism and equipment, then we would get some shifts. We get some shifts. Like for example, the U S open, I'm curious to see what you guys think of this idea. Um, you know, I haven't quite worked this out, but essentially it would be to set up the U S open. It would be just math. It would be, what, what dispersion cone do we have at the parameters golf balls are hitting balls now? To have fairways at the same widths that they were in 1984 for wing foot is, is the wrong view. And to have rough heights at the same height that they were in 1984 is the wrong view. Fairway heights should be wider. I'm sorry, fairways should be wider. Rough heights should be taller because guys obviously they hit it farther the dispersion cones are wider so you give them more room but you also then because they're hitting shorter clubs with steeper angles to even come close to the same penalty of the rough in 1984 it would have to be four inches or five inches instead of two and a half or three somewhere in there the math will work out to where whatever penalty you want instead of a 0.3 shots missing a fairway and you wanted a 0.5 or 0.6 for a U.S. Open because you want to scare people mm-hmm. and you want to maybe have them think about putting a golf ball in that's spinning or more or reducing MOI so that they could have more curvature so they could hit more fairways. And, and then all of a sudden you restore, one, you make the game more cognitive and two, you restore some balance to distance and accuracy. What do you guys think about that idea? Um, Isn't it? Luke, they, am I correct that the fairways are actually smaller now? Like it's it's actually going the opposite direction. I, I I know you're just saying this would be cool in theory, but when people give them all a hard time, like Bay Hill number eighteen is like half the size of what it used to be. Am I correct on something? Didn't you do something like that, Lou? Well, it's part of the USGA Distance Insight report. They have uh, a a sub report that talks about 
um, how courses have changed through the years. And they, they pulled aside a random sample, a very large random sample of golf courses and fairway area has decreased significantly from what it used to be. So fairways are generally old a, a lot, or generally, uh, he's talking general, I'm talking general. Uh, and it's also yeah. true for, they looked at what they called championship courses. So fairway area has reduced it. it it's not to say that, that I, I don't know what the fairways were like at Wingfoot back in the day. They, they could have been, you know, wider, smaller in a specific instance, but overall fairways are generally smaller. But to your idea, if, if you, if someone wants to roll back distance because they feel that scoring is too easy, um, the easiest way to, to, to combat that is to grow the rough up. And, and that is by far the easiest way. And that costs almost no money to do. It's just, it costs less money, you know, d- turn the mowers off on well, depending Sunday, where it, right? dep- depending where it is in the country. Well, though, well we? just turn the mowers off on Sunday and let the grass grow a few extra days. Growing rough up yeah. in, in Arizona, Phoenix is going to be tougher than growing it up in, I don't know. But it's still going to grow more than not than by not cutting it. Sure. Regardless. But, but if you want to control it scoring. It grows in the desert, does it? <laughs> If you don't know it, <laughs> grass grows in the desert. Well, it? okay, you're talking about a desert course. Never mind. So, growing the rough is clearly the easiest way to control scoring if that is what you are trying to accomplish. And I think some people that want a rollback, that's one of their reasons. They want to see scoring uh, get um, a little bit tougher than it currently is. Uh, and uh, I, I'm a proponent of growing the rough up, and that's one way to, to control the game for sure. Yeah, but you don't, then you'll get your entertainment value will dip if you're watching a field. If we're talking about tournament golf, if you're watching a field hack out of the rough all week, people aren't going to watch that. I don't much. know. People I want mean, to see I mean, recoveries. And, and, I, and I hate to speak for someone that isn't here, and, and I won't mention, but generically, you'll hear a lot of people say that there needs to be more randomness, more luck in the game. We need more of a ground game. We need really firm conditions, fairways and greens. And we want to introduce this element of luck and wider fairways um, with a lot of contours and different lies and firmness everywhere is going to bring luck into the game. Well, I would also say you know, tall grass also brings a little bit of luck into the game. You're not quite sure what kind of lie you're going to get. You're not sure if it's going to fly, how it's going to come out, how it's going to spin. So there is certainly an element of look, all of you play golf. Sometimes you get a great lie in the rough. Sometimes you're coming out sideways. It just depends. So there's an element of luck with tall grass. I'm not sure you ever get a great lie in us open rough. Do you? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you you go you get in there and get lucky, but the idea that there is not luck or not skill involved coming out of the rough is 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 hilarious. One year at the uh, U.S. Open, I was practicing uh, Southern Hills, two thousand one. I was chipping out of thick rough, you know, trying to trying to get my arms around it. And Hale Irwin was walking by, who had won three U.S. Opens by then, and he stopped and he was like, "Give me your pitching wedge." And I, I think I was using a sand wedge, fifty four degree. Anyway, he took my pitching wedge out, and you know, I was making a big move, lots of speed down at the bottom. And he just literally just started just going and they were just landing on and rolling in and rolling in. And uh, then he walked away. My buddy was here and I was like, you know, I mean, it can't be that simple, but uh, <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, there is skill involved coming out of the rough it, sidebar to that uh, third round at us open. I, I hit it in the rough on like the fourth hole, it was 140 degrees that week. And my buddy who was there had 
taking the bus to park to get there and he gets all the way up to the fourth green and I get in the rough and I got that line. I'm like, I'm gonna take that pitching wedge and do this hell Irwin thing, you know, and I just go and it rolls and goes right in the hole. So I think Tiger was playing behind me because it was a big crowd there. They wouldn't be there to see me, but so they, they, <laughs> they, they erupted or whatever. And I kind of went like that, walked up, got the ball out of the hole that night at dinner. My buddy was like, what the hell was that on the fourth hole? I said, what do you mean? It's a great shot. I chipped in. He goes, yeah, I know. He goes, he goes, do you realize that all those people had taken like 10 buses to get there? It was 140 degrees. You chip in, they go nuts and you go like that. He was like, that's why you don't make it. He's like, yeah. he goes, you've got to understand. Biggest celebration. He said, the higher you get your hand when you celebrate, the more money you'll make. He's like, these guys, they don't yeah. make that much. These guys make more. And these guys <laughs> crap ton of money. Celebration up there. He's yeah, like, you got to give these people what they want. Um, yeah, yeah. so speaking but, of yeah, your, yeah, speaking of uh, your your back in your playing days so the your only your only appearance in the masters was in 99 i believe uh, okay. and you show up there for the first time and you walk away on thursday and you're the round one leader what was it what was thursday night like for you well so yeah um i had played a practice round with a buddy of mine who was best friends with jack nicholas uh, a fellow by the name of Glenn Day. Glenn and Jack were buds. And Glenn took his yardage book into Jack and said, tell me how to play Augusta National. And so Glenn's telling me this in a practice round weeks earlier somewhere. I can't remember where. And I said, and I said, and what did he do? And Jack, Jack literally went through every shot. He said, you fade it here. You draw it here. You the pins here. You hit it here. When the pins here, you hit it here. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, I said to Glenn, I was like, you and I are playing a practice round at Augusta. So I've got Jack's yards book in my hand and I'm looking at, <laughs> and I'm looking at where Jack is telling you to hit shots. You know, like for example, if the pins left back left on six, Jack, you know, is all about taking risk out of play. And he's like, you have to use that Hill. You have to, you have to hit sort of a, a fade into that Hill to get that fill, Hill to feed it to that left pin. And he's like, you know, you never aim anywhere, but middle right, on one it's like too big a risk to, to go anywhere you don't chase that back pin you don't sniff that left pin and stuff like that the whole way around you hit a high cut you hit it the right center of 10 green you don't mess with the left all the way around so so i played the first round there uh and shot 69 and I, you know i birdied the last hole and um i feel like i played okay to be honest i didn't feel like i played great at all and and so I didn't go home and, and know I had the lead. I literally went home and knew I was tied for the lead, but the round wasn't complete until the next morning. So it wasn't until the next morning when I woke up and everything was finished that I, I, I had the lead. But it was, I had such a clear understanding of how to play Augusta and Augusta can trip people up that, that I didn't really, and this is, I think, why you guys are so successful is it spoke to strategy and, mm -hmm. and, you know, I had such a great understanding of how to play the golf course to reduce risk that, that, you know, what looked like a great round felt like a good round. And, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it was, it was a fun day. You know, the only disappointment I had that whole week was really, you know, on Sunday, uh, well, I had two disappointments, you know, on Saturday I warmed up and I think I can't remember where I was because I'd lost the lead by then, but, I was warming up and I, I just, you've had these warmups where you just don't miss a shot. And I, I was hitting great, just as flush as I could hit it any direction, any height. And, uh, 
Um, I was two under through the first seven holes and I was one back. I was walking to eight T and I thought, you know, there's no flipping way. I'm not winning the masters. <laughs> and, uh, and I flushed it, you know, I knew I, that's where the story was going eventually. <laughs> right. I, I, yeah. Cause you know, I didn't win it, but I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I bombed it down there and I, you know, I, I, I was an idiot. You know, I tried to go, I tried to go, at, there's no reason to go at that green on a zero reason. Uh, but I did and I hit it in the trees, made double, you know, Sunday I missed a putt on the last green. It was blowing 50 miles an hour on Sunday and uh, the low score was 70. I had a putt this long to shoot 71 and I missed it. The wind blew me over and I missed it. And uh, that was the first year that they reduced it was, it used to be like the top 24 and then they reduced it to the top 16 got invited back. So yeah, yeah. if I'd have made that putt, I'd have finished 11th and I got invited back. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so I, I, that little putt on the last yeah, green, yeah. Uh, you know, cost me from coming back. Um, Ouch. Yeah. It hurt a little bit. Just a yeah, little absolutely. Bit. Yeah, absolutely. So one last question to finish then, uh, Brandall. Um, best event, best major to cover. What's your favorite major to cover out of the four majors? I presume you've covered all of them on multiple occasions. What's your favorite one to cover? Uh, it's probably a tie between the Masters and the Open. Uh, really? You know, maybe maybe, maybe the Open. I mean, the Open. Yeah, is, uh... I would say the Open. <laughs> you sound like you would say the Open. Uh... <laughs> Go on, tell us why. Tell us why. <laughs> uh, well... You know, a lot of different reasons. Uh, I, I enjoy the uh, the knowledge that you just never know who you're going to meet over there anywhere. Uh, and I'll give you an example. 2015 Open Championship, uh, I got there early. The course was closed. Uh, I, I poured myself a scotch. I lit myself a cigar. I said, I'm going to go walk the golf course. It was about 9.30 at night, 10 o'clock at night. It was dusk. And my wife was with me and we were just having a great time. I was walking, I was doing research. Um, and uh, this tweeted up guy was walking outside the ropes and uh, he looked like just a delightful fella. And I invited, you know, I was like, come on in. You know, so he comes on in and he's been with the RNA forever, 40 years or something. And, and he and I talked golf. I mean, very specific. Like this guy was telling me about diaries, his golf swing and, you know, shots that, uh, Dave Thomas hit in the, in the 1959 open, um, you know, I mean, it, it was great. And, and they just, they, they knew so much about it. And when we finished, we went into another pub and everybody in there knew as much or more about golf than he did. So, it, yeah. it, uh, you know, there's, there's just a passion for golf, uh, typically at an open championship, the weather's cool. The golf is, is, um, uh, you know, I mean, that's, it's so it's, a fun it's so game. different, isn't it? It's very different, uh, but a great, great hit. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a history buff, so I enjoy yeah. the history. And the same thing's true with the Masters. I enjoy the history here. I enjoy the way the, the golf course, the sights and the smells of it. Every shot has historical context here. Uh, immediate, yeah. immediate historical context. Doesn't matter where somebody hits a shot, you can think, I remember when so-and-so was there. I remember what they did. I remember the moment. So all of a sudden, you're an informed viewer and you know what could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, I, it's not, none of those are work to me. I mean, I work, don't get me wrong. I work like these guys work. I love it, but it's, it's, it's fun to me. You know, it's fun to me to get up every morning. It's fun for me to do research. It really is. When I sit down to do research, I think this is, this is fun. I don't know what I'm going to find, you know, yeah. I don't know. In those particular events, you have such great historical context for everything that's going on that it just, 
you know, it's just layer and layer and layer of history. And mostly our audience are they're golf geeks like we are. And so when you're speaking to them, you're speaking their language for the most mm -hmm. part, especially those weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Well, there you go. Thank you for your time, Brandel. Um, have a great week this week. I hope it all goes. Yeah. I hope you do have that broadcast where you close it at the end and think, no, that did all come in. That Everything was on cue and the producer wasn't a pain in the bum in my ear all day and it went well. Hey, listen, <laughs> uh, uh, it's a real pleasure to join you guys. Trust me, I, uh, I'm i such big fans of y'all's work. Uh, I, I I follow you guys. I, I learned from you and uh, you, you guys are, you know, you guys are doing a great job for golf. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate the work. You can say I appreciate it. I want to just say to Scott, it's, it's uh, yeah. Scott found me in an event a while back when he and I had a, a social media tip. And I think this is a great example for everybody is that, um, you know, Scott came up and, you know, he and I had a kumbaya <laughs> and uh we had a we had a kumbaya let's just call it that way and it's it's, it's a great example of uh, of not social media is not representative of really who people are you know and, and we see people face to face you get a better idea and a better understanding and and so because scott has done that i've learned uh from scott and lou and if scott hadn't done that i probably wouldn't be reading your stuff so you know i appreciate it takes it takes uh, strength of character to do what Scott did, and I appreciated it. So I appreciate it. Well, yes. I appreciate I, you I like saying, what you're that saying because, that. Go on, Scott. I, I was just saying, I've, I've said to people too before that you know, it's I was I gave you a hard time initially on a few things, and and definitely uh, wanted to just express to you that I was sorry. I mean, again, it is like you say, it's it, it is the social media problem where it's easy just to rail on somebody because you don't really see him, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, Brandel's actually a human. Um, luckily, luckily, Gankus had uh, told you that I wasn't the worst guy on earth, and maybe to at least <laughs> listen to me for a second. So, Gigi is always the peace, uh, the peace guy. So we no. can thank him too. No, I appreciate you giving me a, yeah. a second chance, Brandel. Yeah, no worries, man. I really enjoy it. Uh, thanks for having me on. Nice talking to you guys. Thanks oh, real again, quick, Brandel. Who's who's going to win? Come on. Oh, Come on, oh yeah. Well, Come on, Luke. We've already done this once. Can I anyone know. remember I'm, who I'm, they picked? I'm changing. I'm changing mine now because Jordan Spieth is apparently back. I'm Spieth, baby. Okay, you're Spieth. You're All Spieth. Right. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a really good pick because he's done so well there. Right? Even last year when he was uh, his game was off, he's done so well there. Um, I'm going to go with Bryson. Bryson's going to put it together. Yeah. All right, Mark, what about you? I'm going to go Rory, and I don't think he'll win, but I want him to win. I just want your heart. Rory to win. And Brent, so I, I, uh, it's Bryson all the way. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> listen, yeah. I, hope, I hope we're all right. I hope we're right. I hope, I hope we have this battle, and then uh, we'll touch base again later. All right? The winner's got to buy Rory and, uh, and um, DeChambeau last group. That's what we want. Right. All right. Thanks, fellas. Take care. Thanks, Brandon. Have a great week out no there, Brandon. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. As always, remember, give us a review down below. Hit those stars up. Remember to subscribe. If you're not subscribed already, you get the podcast a little bit earlier when it hits iTunes for certain. Thank you, Brandon, for your time again. What a interesting chat that was. Always got some interesting stories. And I love the way Brandon definitely is trying to push the commentary ideas forwards and also I think a little snapshot into maybe how difficult it is with such a broad array of audiences that you're trying to appeal with as always thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next podcast